This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Now and Not Yet. Pressing in when you're waiting, wanting, and restless for more. Written and narrated by best-selling author Ruth Cho Simons and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Welcome to the Grace Enough Podcast. I am your host, Amber Cullum. Before we launch into this week's conversation with Jay Kim, I want to prepare you for what's coming next week on Grace Enough. 21 Days of Gratitude. I'll be sharing the biblical roots of the Thanksgiving offering and its impact on followers of Jesus today, the impact gratitude practice has on the brain, and various gratitude practices. To prepare, download the four-week free gratitude practice at graceenoughpodcast.com slash free gratitude practice. Today, I sit down with J.Y. Kim to discuss the book of Colossians and how Colossae has several parallels to our current culture. We discuss integrating your faith in Jesus into all aspects of life, setting your mind on things above, and developing a closer walk with Jesus through intentional daily practices. If you would like to take a deep dive into the book of Colossians, Jay has written a study guide with teaching videos titled Colossians, One Jesus, One People. You can find it linked in the show notes. J.Y. Kim, welcome to the Grace Enough podcast. Oh, thanks, Amber. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. I'm looking forward to having our conversation about Colossians, which is a study that you have recently written and I'm actually looking forward to it because our family this summer, we memorized a large chunk of Colossians 3, primarily because it's just been, well, Colossians 3 is so much about how we can become Christ-like. And so my husband loves it and encouraged Mm. us to do that. So it's been really formational for our Mm. family. With that said, I want to start out with how, tell us a little bit about your early faith journey. Like, how did you first come to know Christ? Because you're a pastor now, so it's probably been a while. Yeah. Um, I grew up in the church. I grew up a single mom, immigrant Mm -hmm. mother, um, raising me and, um, you know, went to a Korean American church growing up. And, uh, for those who are, who are not familiar, immigrant churches, um, are much more than just, you know, 70 minutes on a Sunday, Mm -hmm. five songs and a 35 minute sermon. They become, the hub of your social life. They really become mm. the sort of familial infrastructure that someone needs when they essentially are trying to make a life in a brand new place where they don't know wow. the culture or sometimes the language and certainly don't know other people. So all that to say, I grew up in the church, but what that meant was I was at church like three, four times <laughs> a week. You yeah. know, I was there all day Sunday, morning till evening going to youth service during the, in the morning and then playing with my friends and hanging out all day. You know, I went to church on Wednesday night on Friday night and then Saturday all day be hanging out with church friends. So I grew up in that environment and um, I thought what that meant was that I was a deeply devoted, passionate follower of Jesus. But my freshman year of college, when the entire apparatus of my youth ministry uh, went away, um, I went through what is, you know, sadly very common these days. Yeah. Um, 
I went through a, you know, a pretty significant deconstruction of faith mm-hmm. season. So for several years in college, I defined myself as an agnostic. I think I still believed that there was some divine being out there, but I essentially threw the faith of my childhood and all these sort of nonsensical Jesus, you know, mm-hmm. stories just out the window. I just thought that there's no way any of that wow. is real. But then in my early twenties, near the end of my undergrad, um, a group of guys who were several years older than me, uh, who, who were a part of the church where I had grown up, actually one of them had been my small group leader when I was in high school Um, Hmm. those guys just never gave up on me, even during those years when I had sort of walked away from my faith and from the church. So I started hanging out with them again. We started hanging out on Monday nights. They started inviting me to just a Monday night hangout where we'd, you know, eat dinner and play video games and watch football and just build relationship. Long story short, those Monday nights turned into uh, a real saving grace for me where, I encountered the risen Christ, I think really in a meaningful way for the first time through this community of guys. So that was my early 20s. So it was my fourth year of college. Um, I I was a senior. I was on track to graduate with a business management degree. um, And I dropped out. (laughs) I dropped out, quit my job and uh, broke up with a girl I'd been dating, very unhealthy relationship. So my entire life just kind of came to a screeching halt and I sort of rebuilt from the ground up or or better yet, God sort of rebuilt it from Mm -hmm. the ground up. And I ended up starting to volunteer uh, in the youth ministry where I'd grown up and these guys that were mentoring me, they were volunteering. So I just followed them along. I was like, you guys are doing it. I guess I'll do it. And um, I led a seventh grade uh, seventh grade boys, small group. And oh, yes. <laughs> um, yeah, I just fell in love with it. I mean, mm-hmm. I was like, man, not because I had great answers for these kids, not because I had anything profound to offer them, but just because their questions and their honesty was really doing something in me. So mm-hmm. long story short, that, that led me to enrolling in Bible college, uh, became a youth pastor and started a college ministry, eventually helped plant a church and then spent some time as a teaching pastor. And, um, and now I serve as the lead pastor at the church where I'm on staff here. And, uh, here we are, you know, 20 years later. That's right. Now, have you always been on the West coast? Like since? Yeah. Yeah. Not just the West coast, but right here in San Jose around all around San Jose, but yeah, Silicon Valley is home. I've been here bait i wasn't born here but moved here when i was like four or five and yeah uh, never left so yeah i've been here my whole life basically i mean it makes me want to ask too like what do you know like how your mom felt during that time that you had said i don't really believe that jesus is really all that yeah i mean she was heartbroken Mm -hmm. she was also really busy she's working you know yeah two, three jobs at a time. Um, yeah, it was a season of, of real heartbreak and anguish, I think for her, but my mother still to this day is, you know, the most passionate follower of Jesus. I know mm. and never stopped praying for me. And, yeah. um, yeah, that was a hard season, but, yeah. uh, it, it's a beautiful thing. Now she goes to our church here and that's so fun. Yeah, it's, it's really profound. Yeah. Yeah, that's a gift, especially once, I mean, because you have kids of your own, right? And then to have your yeah. mom at your own church and with your kids, oh, I'll never take it for granted because we don't <laughs> have that here, but we were in Tampa mm. for 
eight years when all of our kids were born and it was so nice to be around family, yeah. especially when um, you share the faith aspect as well. It's a real gift. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's dig in a little bit to Colossians to set, you know, the stage for people. Um, what was really going on with the Colossians, with the culture that Paul is writing this letter for? Like, what was the purpose of it? Yeah, in the first century world, when Paul writes this letter to the early Christians in this city, Colossae, um, Colossae was a, a place, it was really diverse, uh, really multi, mm-hmm. uh, multi-ethnic in many ways. And um, because of that, it was a place, Colossae was a place where Judaism um, would flourish right alongside a variety of other local religions right alongside a variety of sort of national pagan religions within the Roman Empire. So it was a hyper-spiritual place, a very religious place, but it was prone to uh, what's called syncretism, which is just kind of a fancy way of saying fusion. You know, you think about like a fusion restaurant yeah. <laughs> where it's like, oh, it's like an Asian Mexican fusion <laughs> restaurant where you're going to eat Let's get you know, some kimchi like, tacos. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. And that's wonderful, actually, when it comes to yes, food. Yes. Um, not so great when it comes to a belief system or structure, yeah. you know, when it comes to the pursuit of truth and the pursuit of um, the actual meaning of mm. life and the path to finding, you know, life and life to the full. So, so that's what's happening in Colossae. And uh, most scholars agree, they they call it the Colossian heresy. But basically, long story short, um, the early Christians, these men and women who had been either Jewish, religiously Jewish, or um, a part of a pagan religion in Colossae, mm-hmm. all of these different people from all of these different, different backgrounds had encountered the risen Christ. And now mm-hmm. they had pledge their lives to Jesus as their Lord and Savior. But the Christian church is new. And this is this is a brand new movement. It's in its infancy. And so all of these men and women, as they had let go of their previous lives and their, their previous religious and belief systems and had said yes to Jesus, um, unknowingly, they had brought along with them into their discipleship to Jesus a variety of their mm. old ways, religiously speaking, and how they thought about what it meant to follow Jesus. And so it there developed there in Colossae what most scholars call the Colossian heresy, meaning okay. there seems to have been a variety of misunderstandings about Christian belief and about who Jesus is and about what it means to follow him and to experience life in him. And so mm-hmm. Paul, in, in many ways, he's writing this letter out of love for a people that he loves to course correct them and to essentially say, listen, you need to take off, put off all of this mm-hmm. other stuff that you have unknowingly, unwittingly attached to your faith in Jesus. And you you need to recenter and refocus yourself on the thing that is primary. And there's a sort of beautiful simplicity and, and a profound power in mm. Paul's words here, where he just reorients his listeners and reorients, you know, us today 
around the centrality of Jesus mm. as king, that Jesus is at the center of all things. And outside of that, it's all sort of peripheral stuff, mm-hmm. you know, that's either unhelpful or unnecessary. Yeah. Um, so, so that's what's happening in Colossae. It's the primary reason why Paul writes the letter. And I think it has such parallels to our culture today, which is one of the reasons why I, I took such a high interest in, in the book. Yeah, well, and I love that you say that because I've heard you speak on it a couple of times of how it does, you know, parallel a bit of our culture today. And myself, having grown up in a very culturally Christian area, I can miss that sometimes, you know, that. Mm. So I was in a conversation recently with Daniel Lee, who leads New City Fellows here in Raleigh, and he grew up in New York City. And he's like, you know, I remember moving to Raleigh and that was one of the things that was just so different because even though there's lots of non-Christians, people are very familiar with Christian doctrine ways, you know, just the general idea of it. Whereas in New York City, he said, I spent my whole life and that that's not the case. Like many people don't know. And so would you say that that is kind of the cultural um, comparison there, because you're also in an area that's very similar to, you know, New York in the sense of it's not culturally Christian. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. So the city where we are, San Jose, it's about 900,000 people. The greater San Francisco Bay Area is over 8 million people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the percentages, you know, swing a bit year over year, but always it's somewhere in the 90%, 90 to 93% of the greater Bay Area, greater San Francisco Bay Area is unchurched. Mm -hmm. I could care less about Jesus, irreligious, um, sometimes antagonistic to Mm -hmm. Christianity, Uh, So yes, I have lived my entire life and serve as a pastor of a local church in a part of the world, part of the country, where to be a Christian is to be the minority by Mm -hmm. a significant margin. I know that that's not necessarily true in every part of the country. However, Mm -hmm. I think what the data shows us is it is becoming increasingly true all over the country. Yeah. Uh, not the world, by the way, the the uh, Christian right. church is exploding in the global East and the global South, but here in the global West, um, generally, and then in America specifically, at least numerically in terms of church engagement mm. and right. self-professed allegiance to Jesus, you know, as King, yeah. um, those numbers are, are in steep decline. So I think that's increasingly true all over the country. So mm-hmm. even in a Raleigh, North Carolina, I, I love the way you put it. You know, people are familiar with the story, but familiarity with the story does not necessarily equate to um, a life devoted to Christ. For sure. So I think, you know, whether you're in the San Francisco Bay Area or in North Carolina or New York City or, you know, Birmingham, Alabama or any part of Texas other than <laughs> Austin, you know, like the challenges are different, but mm-hmm. they are all challenges. So, you know, in a place where people are far more familiar with the biblical story and the Christian movement as a whole, the challenge really is cultural Christianity. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people who are living their lives however they want to live them. 
Uh, but they claim, you know, well, like, oh yeah, I'm a Christian because mm -hmm. whatever, fill in the blank. I grew up going to church. I know the Bible stories. I went to Awana. So I memorized a bunch of verses. Yeah. I was baptized when I was 12 in youth group. So I'm a Christian. Mm -hmm. Now my life does not reflect Christ likeness in any way, but I'm a Christian. That's cultural mm -hmm. Christianity. Whereas, and that's a tremendous challenge. Whereas here in Silicon Valley, our challenge is just, what are you even talking about? What what is the gospel of Matthew? What is even gospel? Right. Isn't that a genre of music? What do you you know? Yes. Um. So different challenges <laughs> for sure, but all challenges, challenges nonetheless. Yeah, that's right. This episode is brought to you by the Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, "If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican." Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on the Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. Well, so when you, if you were teaching Colossians, to the people that you pastor, what would be one of the big takeaways when you're starting on chapter one mm. from that chapter? What would be something that you really would want them to walk out the door with? Gosh, it's a great question. You know, Colossians one is home to that beautiful epic uh, treatise that Paul gives for the identity of Christ, right? Mm -hmm. Verses 15 to 20 where he says that the son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. You know, mm. he says things like, in Jesus, everything was created. Jesus is before everything. In him, everything holds together. He's the head of the body, which is the church. Um, he's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. So that in everything, and by that word, everything means literally everything and all mm -hmm. things. Yes. Jesus might have the supremacy. Wow. Um, so to me, that's what really stands out. Christ is king. There's no denying it. Jesus is king. And if Jesus is king, then no one and nothing else is, mm. which is a very offensive thing to say in a culture that is as individualistic and yeah. autonomous as ours is, um, where uh, really the greatest idol in our midst culturally is the idol of self. Oh, for, yeah. You know, you hear a lot about, you know, the word identity has taken on a whole new slew of meanings in our culture today. And I think that has a lot to do with the fact that we do not allow anyone or anything to infringe upon our own sort of self-defined, self-professed sense of being. Mm -hmm. I am this. And really what that comes down to is it's a worship of self, you know, Um and that's problematic because the scriptures seem to indicate not just in Colossians, but all throughout. And Jesus seems to indicate that he is king and um, that he rules and reigns over all things and that he has the supremacy. 
and that the only option we have is either to bow an allegiance to him and find um, meaning and purpose and joy in mm-hmm. finding ourselves in the great, big, beautiful story that God is writing in the world, mm-hmm. or to choose otherwise, which is sort of, again, in my best understanding of scripture and from my own life experience, uh, a fu- futile endeavor. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I feel like sometimes that individualism has even crept into the church so much, right? And I'm yeah. not just talking, I'm not talking just about people who teach on stage. I just mean in general, because we all are still human, oftentimes influenced, unfortunately, yeah. more by culture than by the word of God. And um, that is, so I don't want to say that's a scary thing, but it is a bit. Um, yeah. I mean, and, and so how do you even handle that? Like, because I would say that could be even, I don't want to say more difficult, but definitely one of the challenges of living in an area that is quote unquote, culturally Christian, because yeah. they don't, it's like, it's almost in disguise even more. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right. I like the way you put it. It is in disguise. Mm-hmm. I think we mistake belief for discipleship, you know, and yes, <laughs> it's, it's interesting. Um, the word Christian is found in the Bible, I think, twice in the New Testament. But the word disciple is found, mm. I mean, dozens, if not hundreds of times. It's like all over the place. Mm-hmm. And Jesus's invitation to us is not to believe in, I mean, he does invite us to believe in him. He says that several times. But really, the most consistent invitation he gives is to follow him. Yeah. And there's a dramatic difference. And the two are connected. They're not opposed. That's right. You would not follow unless you believe mm-hmm. that this person is worth following. That's true in all instances. So yes, belief is, it matters a great deal. We have to come to a, a, a the saving knowledge, you mm-hmm. know, of, of Christ who died and was raised again and ascended as king. We have to believe that and we have to go through the journey of belief and wrestle with our doubts and all of those things. That's all real. Mm-hmm. But once we believe, belief is not enough. It doesn't mm-hmm. end at belief, but I think a lot of cultural Christians think it does. They right. think like, oh gosh, I said the prayer. And mm-hmm. when you ask me the question, do you believe in Jesus Christ? My answer is yes. So what else do you need? Well, mm-hmm. what else Jesus needs is for us to say yes to his most consistent invitation which is to follow every step of the way. And in fact, he's got this really difficult challenge. He doesn't just say follow. He says, take up your cross and follow. Hmm. And, you know, today we wear crosses around our necks and they're ornaments. But when Hmm. Jesus said those words in the first century world, nobody would have worn a cross or adorned their home with a cross because the cross was an instrument of death yeah, and not and only torture. death, but the most, yeah, the most torturous, painful, shameful death that was reserved for the worst of criminals. Mm. And Jesus knew that that's how he would die for our sins. And so that's what he invites us to, which essentially mm-hmm. is an invitation into death. Mm-hmm. You know, this is why of the self. scriptures tell us, yeah, of self, right? Die to yourself and to be made new, you know? So that's the invitation. And I mm-hmm. think that is the challenge for all of us, but especially and uniquely so for those who are mired in cultural Christianity. Mm. Well, and as you go in to chapter two, I mean, a verse, a couple of verses that I hear frequently and um, that we're going to talk about a little bit is six and seven. So Colossians two, six and seven, and it says, therefore, 
As you receive Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And so based on the conversation that we just had, what are some of those crucial ways that we walk in Jesus? Yeah. I mean, I know that's not black and white, but. Right, right. (laughs) You know, I think it has a lot to do with um, intentionality. I think it has a lot to do with attention. You know, there's been a lot said in the last decade or so about, you know, as we sort of find ourselves neck deep in the digital age Mm -hmm. and people call the digital age, the attention economy that really, you know, you find yourself sort of mindlessly numbingly scrolling your feed And what is happening? You are giving your attention to a particular Mm -hmm. product. You think you're looking at photos of your friends, but really macro level, what's happening is you are giving your attention to a product, whether it's Instagram or Facebook or TikTok or the news media or whatever it might be, Twitter, Mm -hmm. any whatever. And you're giving your attention away. And I think in large part, that is step one in walking with Jesus. Hmm. Um, You cannot walk with, you know, the Greek word there is peripatao. And it's, it's, uh, it literally means to walk, but really at the time, the word was used to describe a devoted, committed, consistent, what Eugene Peterson called a long obedience in the same direction. direction. Um, This sort of long, steady, side-by-side following of Jesus, Mm. our master and our teacher and our Lord. And when our attentions are divided and fractured, it becomes really hard because you're living life with a bunch of start and stops, you know, and we find ourselves wrestling with this all the time in a variety of ways. I mean, we, we live, most of us live in perpetual distraction because of the sort of buzzing um, temptation of our smartphones and, mm-hmm. and news media and social media, and just, you know, an endless array of entertainment options at the mm-hmm. touch of our fingers. You know, there's a lot to say here, but I guess my encouragement would be that the first step is to begin with discipline, yeah. orienting your attention toward Christ and all things. Mm-hmm. And it always comes down to the practical stuff. So, you know, there's a variety of things you can do is to commit to starting your day maybe with scripture or prayer. Mm-hmm. Um, at our church, we are beginning to practice a, an ancient sort of Ignatian practice called the daily examine. This is yeah. something that we're inviting our entire church to participate in, which is Fantastic. the daily examine is a, is a prayerful way of, of ending your day by reflecting back on your day and mm-hmm. reflecting on the day to cam, come uh, with God, you know, That's in right. a prayerful way. So Um, A variety of ways to do that, but to begin implementing practices Mm -hmm. um, that can orient consistently your attention toward Christ. I think that's a great first step in walking with him. Yeah. And I mean, that something we've been talking about a lot is just really moving away from that division of sacred and secular, which is interesting because I feel like that's almost something that got set up before the digital age, you know, Mm. where we kept we didn't, we don't live these integrated lives where 
we take Christ into every part of our lives, but instead there's this, okay, this is church. And this is, yes. you know, this is my quiet time for my 30 minutes in the morning. And then I kind of just move on about my day. While that is important, you can be doing and interacting with God all day long, no matter yes. where you are, because all work is God's work. Yes, that's right. Yeah. There's a sense that compartmentalization mm-hmm is helpful because it moves us toward efficiency. And that really, in many ways, is a product of the industrial revolution. So just a prime example of this would be auto manufacturing. When Henry Ford in the early 20th century or whenever, when he um, applied the assembly line model to his Model T Ford cars, he like exponentially grew the business. And the assembly line model really is about compartmentalization. It's no longer one craftsman uh, being a craftsman and crafting a beautiful car. Now it's, I'm, I don't make cars. I attach hubcaps. I'm the hubcap guy. That's This right. is actually really wonderful in so many yeah. ways. I mean, our, our current modern public education system is based on this as well, essentially mm-hmm. an assembly line model. And so, you know, there's there's good and bad to it, but I think it's utterly dangerous when it comes to forming a holistic life. Mm-hmm. But this is what we do because yeah. we bow at the altar of efficiency. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so that's exactly what happens when it comes to our faith. It's like, okay, mm-hmm. I got my dose of Jesus. I went to church for 75 minutes on Sunday. Yeah. Now it's Sunday afternoon, so it's football time. Mm-hmm. And then it's binge watching Netflix time. And then it's Monday to Friday. And it's like career professional time or parenting time or whatever. Mm. And then, oh, I'm exhausted. Saturday, I plunge myself into leisure. And then Sunday morning, let me go get my 75-minute dosage of, of Jesus. But that's not what Jesus wants. Jesus is asking for all of us, the entirety of our lives. He wants to permeate every moment of every day. And that is actually possible. To invite Jesus into all of those spaces, to invite him into your leisure, to invite him into your parenting or your profession or your career or school, to invite him into those quiet moments when it's just you alone with your thoughts. Mm. And when we do that, again, it's about attention. Can we give our attention in the midst of all of that activity to Christ? When we do that, that's when our lives begin um, to move away from simple belief into an actual discipleship to Christ. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think this may be somewhat repetitive. So if it is, we can just move along. But in these same verses, when it talks about being rooted and established in Christ, well, rooted and built up and then established in the faith, is there anything that you would add to that? Because that just is, I mean, it's packed with, yeah, We could say a lot of things about what that means, but it really is important. Yeah, I think it means lots of things. And you're right. We could talk endlessly about it. But a couple of initial thoughts. One, rooted means that all of that activity comes from Christ being the foundation. Yeah. You know, um, that it all starts with Jesus. We often think that Jesus is some sort of end goal. Mm -hmm. That's actually not what it is. His invitation to us is to abide in him. Mm to essentially live our lives with him at the center, at the core, that all that we do flows out of our relationship with him. It's not that our activity 
establishes the relationship with him. I think that's a dangerous misunderstanding. And that's where we get into sort of like works-based faith, you know, the great misunderstanding that we have to somehow earn God's Mm. presence, God's love. and, And we don't, we actually, all the activity flows out of love that has been received. Uh, freely you know that's why it's love if it's not freely given if it's not given as a choice it's not love if it's earned it's not grace that's That's a wage or a payment Mm -hmm. grace by its nature cannot be earned Mm -hmm. Um, but you know dallas willard has this great line he says grace is opposed to earning it is Mm -hmm. not opposed to effort effort so as as we began rooted in christ having received his love that again, that's why Paul says it overflowing with thankfulness. What will come out of you will be gratitude. And what gratitude leads to naturally is responsive activity, mm. right? Like, oh my gosh, I'm so grateful that my life is going to orient it, itself around the gratitude. And I'm going to express that gratitude in the way I live my life and in the way I follow Jesus uh, into all of life. Wow. That's so good because I love that you brought up the Dallas Willard quote, because that's when my husband um, says all the time to mm. me and my kids. And yeah. so he's just going to be so happy that you just, said it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. he's going to be like, yes, my, one of my favorite interviews, but that's a side <laughs> note as well. Um, well, and, and speaking about Thanksgiving, Paul, I mean, there, he doesn't write any letter. He doesn't write anything that he doesn't attach gratitude too. Yeah. Um, this overflow of thanks. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what role do you think that plays in our lives as believers, as followers of Christ? Yeah. Again, that we could talk about for an hour or two. I mean, it's changed I, I, my life. Yeah. I I think in life we it seems to me that we fixate these days, not everyone, but but many people, if not most people. We find ourselves fixating so much on control. Mm, you know, yes. we, we want to control, control the narrative, control outcomes, control whatever. But when you really, really think about it, like if you just like clear your mind and really think about your life, the reality is we control so very little. Like <laughs> the fact that we're having this conversation that you and I are alive and are able to think and speak and whatever it's because there is breath in my lungs. That's right. And there's nothing. Now, there are things I can do to damage my ability to breathe for sure. So that is within my control. But the fact that I am a fully formed human, healthy enough to breathe, I didn't really do much to get here. (laughs) You know, a lot of it is just the time and the place the that sovereignty of God. <laughs> yeah. Tim Keller has this wonderful line about, you know, who you are and what you have and what you've done. So much of it is, I'm paraphrasing him here, but basically he said, so much of it is due to the time and the place and the situation you were born into, the particular era in human history, um, the natural gifts and talents that you have that are at your disposal that are yeah. just wired into you genetically, all of which you had no control, no say over. Mm-hmm. And so his conclusion is really at the end of the day, it's all a gift. The mm-hmm. whole thing is a gift from God. And when we think about it that way, it changes everything. It To me, it, it's done two crucial things. One, it has helped me to let go of the myth of control. 
the the myth that I have so much control over outcomes, over what happens next, over... Now, that's not to say I shouldn't work hard and do my best to move things in a direction that I sense God is asking us to move. Like, of course, I participate with God in the work of bringing him glory and good to as many as possible, of course. But at the end of the day, it's all done out of immense gratitude that I have the opportunity because I don't really control even the fact that I'm here. That's right. You know, it's all a gift. Uh, The other thing it's done is it has given me such deep abiding peace and joy, you know, because my personality, it's easy for me to just fall into the rut of um, fear and anxiety mm-hmm. and frustration at, you know, not knowing the outcomes before mm-hmm. they happen, you know, all of those things. And just knowing that there is, I have so little control has been freeing in a mm-hmm. strange way. Yeah. So I, I've been, you know, the last six to nine months or so, I've been practicing this breath prayer um, oh. for those unfamiliar breath prayers are exactly what they sound like. They're literally just um, simple, short prayers. You, you can speak in a breath. So mm-hmm. you breathe in a few thoughts and, and you breathe, breathe out a few thoughts. And I've been practicing this breath prayer. You know, I just breathe in God, you control outcomes. Mm. And I just breathe out God. I want to be faithful. That's mm. it. You know, my Beautiful. calling is not, God has not called me to be successful. He's called me to be faithful. That's it. And I think that's true for everybody. So um, living with that sort of paradigm is only possible when we're living out of gratitude. Mm. Mm. That is, it's so powerful. And I think even just being consistent in gratitude is, Mm. it, it, it reorients your mind towards a peaceful countenance, right? Because just- And and I mean, that's, that's brain science too, which is awesome because it's Mm. like, that's the way God literally designed us. And now scientists are figuring it out, which is another cool thing that it really does bring everything down a little bit and helps you to focus on again, the goodness of God in the land of the living that we can so easily when we're grasping for control and grasping for things to be done our way, lose sight of. And so- Um, I appreciate that. Well, as I mentioned, this summer, we memorized Colossians 3. It actually did, not all of it, but 1 through 17. It did come Mm -hmm. out of my husband actually listening to a lot of Dallas's teachings on Mm -hmm. Colossians 3 and just how much it's like if you really want to um, become more and more Christ-like, a great place to start to figure out what that looks like is reading Colossians 3. And so... Mm. When it starts out, you know, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth, for Mm. you have died and your life is hidden in Christ. What does that actually mean? Like, what does it mean to set your mind on things that are above? Because I think sometimes we can get caught up in it being just like the heavenly paradise with the... (sighs) you know, perfection. And we're all going to be sitting around talking to Moses. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sorry. No, you know, what does great. that mean? You know? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I, you mentioned Dallas Willard. He's been a tremendous influence mm. on me as well. Yeah. I think it's his book, Spiritual on, on the Spirit of the Disciplines, maybe he's got. 
uh, a wonderful treatment on this. But um, yeah, you're exactly right. It's not about, you know, people, there's that REM song, Happy Shiny People. You know, and Tiny, I think, happy yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> and uh, I think culture has this sort of idea, this caricature that Christians are shiny, happy people mm. that we just live essentially that we're just like ignorant, you know, we, we yes. are intentionally ignorant of all the brokenness in the world. Mm. And, and I, I would say some churchgoers I've met are truly that, and, you know, like, Fair enough. Maybe, maybe you're just like life is too hard. And but I would say very clearly, just my best understanding of scripture, I actually think the Bible is the most honest, sober, brutally genuine assessment of the human condition um, yes. in all of literature. Like mm. it is the most brutally honest and genuine. It doesn't pull punches. You know, people think people who've never read the Bible think the Bible is just page after page of like little fortune cookie snippets, you know, like God loves you and and what to do. Yeah. Either rules and regulations do don't do this. Don't do that. The 10 commandments. And then like you get to the new Testament, it's just verse after verse of like, everything's going to be fine. And the Lord has a plan for your life. You know, like Jeremiah 29, 11 is like everyone's favorite verse. And they put it on coffee mugs for, I know the plans I have for you says the Lord, you're going to prosper. You know, we put that on coffee mugs, but read Jeremiah, like the entire book of Jeremiah. It is one of the most depressing reads you will <laughs> yes. ever read. Like it is brutal and not fun. Um, and long. In fact, yeah, it's long <laughs> and it's just over repetitively depressing. And uh, it's interesting though. Like I find a lot of comfort and hope in that. Yeah. Because again, knowing that about scripture, how does that even work with what Paul says here to set mm-hmm. your mind on things above and not on earthly things? Certainly, if you read the rest of just even what Paul says throughout his letters, but absolutely when you read the rest of the Bible, what Paul cannot mean is be shiny, happy people. Just ignore all the wrong and the pain and the hurt in the Mm. world and put your head in the clouds and just like, you know, put your fingers in your ears and la la la, just pretend everything's fine. That is absolutely not what he means. Yeah. So what does he mean? Again, this is a much longer conversation, but I think when he talks about earthly things and juxtaposes it with things above, mm-hmm. he's talking about the paradigm through which you see all of life, right? There is there is a fleshly human way to see life, yes. to assess situations, to assess your own desires and motivations. And then there is a Christian way, a way that you know, this whole concept of above, it's not an invitation to put your head in the clouds. It, you can think of it more like a way to transcend, in our culture especially, to transcend the sort of black and white paradigm, you know, the mm-hmm. binary that exists. You're either for this and against that or for that and against this. Mm. This is right. This is all of those things. And um, tribalism, you know, you see that all the time on social media. If you voted for this candidate and not this one, then you are evil. You're a bigot. You're whatever. Um, Mm. And it's an invitation to transcend that human mess and to see through the lens of Christ, which is the lens of love, compassion, redemption grace truth mm-hmm. you know all of those things and mm. um you know he says in other places 
think about what is good and beautiful and true mm-hmm. and uh, Galatians five, you know, what is the fruit of the spirit? Well, it's like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and on and on. That's what it means. It means to, mm. to see life and the world and yourself through a, a whole new paradigm, a brand new lens. Mm. Yeah. And I mean, don't you think like thinking on those things opens our eyes, eyes to actually see that taking place on the earth? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's been something that God has really worked on me is that Mm -hmm. you can't see the work I am doing in the world if you're not ever thinking about that work. (laughs) Right. Yeah. (laughs) You know, know? and I mean, because sometimes it's a little moment Yeah. where you're like, that's the work of the Lord, like through the, the cloud of, you know, the brokenness that's around I can see God in that, you know, I mean, I, so I think that sometimes that is, you know, thinking once you set your mind on those things, you begin to be awakened to um, a lot of little ways that God is working in the world. Um, Even though he's working in a lot of big ways, we can see it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, in Celtic tradition, there's this concept of thin places and, um, you know, in Celtic cool. tradition, essentially what it comes down to is uh, thin places are geographic locations where it feels like the barrier between heaven, God space and earth, mm. human space is really thin. Mm. And I think that's, you know, I think there's there's credence to that. But I okay. actually think, you know, living our lives with our minds set on things above is a way to thin out the space wherever Mm. we are geographically or situationally to thin out the space between Mm. God's space and and human space. And I think it's possible in ways that um, we can't even imagine sometimes. Mm. Mm. That's beautiful. Well, let's close with this and talking a little bit more about Colossians three, where Paul goes on and he shares a lot of things to take off. You've mentioned Mm. this a little bit already and a lot of things to put on And those characteristics to put on are very much characteristics that we see in Christ. But I think sometimes what happens is um, people can get bogged down with the earning mentality, the the check mark mentality. And so um, I, I guess just speak to that a little bit. Like, how do you really take off these things and put on these characteristics of Christ? Yeah. I know there's no formula. Yeah. You know, I think the metaphor he's using about putting on and taking off, which he uses multiple times mm-hmm. throughout his letters, it can be easily misunderstood as if it as it is as simple as putting on a new shirt, you know? And yes. so we go we go searching. It's like, what is that mechanism by which I can just kind of easily put on compassion, kindness, humility? How do I do that? And that's not what he means. What he means is do the hard work of being Mm. the sort of person who is clothed or covered in all of this Mm. and not just covering up, you know, sexual immorality, impurity, Mm -hmm. lust, evil. He says, first, take that off. It's as if that's a dirt that's dirty. Mm -hmm. And then you've got to, you know, he he actually says, put it to death, Mm -hmm. kill it and then put on the clean stuff. Um, You know, it's interesting. I, I think, 
Peter, um, in his letter, I think it's first Peter early on, he talks about uh, the old King James translation. He has a similar thing here where he says essentially put on, but he uses a phrase that in the old King James is um, translated gird up. Yeah. You know, gird, gird up your loins. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, that's helpful. That's always been helpful for me when I when I read um, New Testament descriptions of putting on the characteristics of Christ. That phrase, that word, it's a single word in the Greek to gird up your loins. It was a very common word in mm. the first century world. It was an agricultural society, an agrarian culture. And so that 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 verb for gird up your loins, it actually literally was the word that was over and over again used in everyday language, actually, in everyday parlance to talk about, you know, men would wear long sort of flowing robe like clothing yeah. at the time. But when they were going to go out for, you know, an athletic competition or go out to battle or go farm the field, what what they would do is they would take it. And they would shove the long flowing part of their robes or their clothing into their belt line so that their legs were free to go do the work. Mm. And that's what Paul's talking about here, right? Mm. Clothe yourself, but it doesn't mean just put on a shirt. It means like the modern Eugene Peterson, actually his paraphrase of first Peter, he, he says it perfectly. He paraphrases Peter's words, good up you Lawrence as roll up your sleeves, mm. which I think is the modern more of a do of your work. Yeah. yeah. It's like you roll up your sleeves because you're getting ready to get your hands dirty. You're about to get mm. into it. Yeah. And that's Paul's invitation here. Clothe yourself is essentially like roll up your sleeves and do the work of living with compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness, mm. and patience. That's why he then says, like, bear with each other, which is yeah. an effortful work. He doesn't say, you know, and then just casually forgive one another. He says, no, 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 bear, bear with each with other. One, yeah. Like, bear the burden, carry the weight. It's hard mm. work, mm -hmm. but this is what it means to clothe yourself. You know? Wow. Ooh, that's helpful. Thank you. Because, um, yeah. I mean, I, I know from earlier years in my faith walk of, of feeling that earning mentality. Right. And I mm. sometimes feel like, because in, you know, elementary church, yeah, <laughs> we may teach that put on, you know, and button up and that's appropriate for that age group. But then somehow we're teaching adults that it's still the same. Mm. Um, and it's like moving past that elementary truth to, you know, eating the solid food. I feel like, so thinking about it as rolling up your sleeves or girding your loins does add more weight and depth to it mm, um, compared yeah. to just putting on the clothes. Well, so tell us if someone wants to do the study, six weeks, correct? Yes. Yeah. It's There's video sessions and then a discussion guide. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Jay, you have a host of other books and things like that as well. Do you have a website you can point people to if they're interested in learning more? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for asking. It's just a uh, jkimthinks.com, all one word, jkimthinks.com. And all of my work is posted there. And um, yeah, there you go. All right. Thank you so much for uh, breaking this down a little bit for us tonight. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. During the past year, studying and repetitive reading of Colossians has been transformational. So if you're looking for a Bible study, I recommend Jay's Colossians, One Jesus, One People. 
You can find it in the free gratitude practice linked in the show notes or on your current listening app when you scroll down. Thank you for listening to the Grace Enough Podcast. Tune in next time.